You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is so exciting. This is episode 150. We have been doing this for almost three years. We will have our third anniversary coming up this February. And we want to thank you all for listening and being supportive and participating in our contest this year and just hanging out with us while we talk movies. So thank you very much. Okay. Dude, toot, moan, horn. How many podcasts make it to 150 episodes? Well, I think quick. I mean, I don't know. Three years. It seems like a lot of people run out of steam. I I think we're... I mean, I think you're smaller. It depends. Like, there are podcasts that have like 7,000 episodes. So we're we're babies. We're still considered kind of babies in this. Uh, uh, I I uh, maybe so, but I think if you look at the number of people who have at least one episode, how many people get to 150 from that? I that think more set? than you think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll do some research and put yeah, it let's in the do show the notes. research. Yeah, but I'm proud of myself anyway. We, I'm proud of us. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. It sounded like you, you didn't think it was an accomplishment. So I do, but. No, I think it's an accomplishment, but I just, I think we're still on the low end for as, as most podcasts go. Hmm. I mean, I think like Joe Rogan has, are you talking about just like the little independent ones that have no name recognition? Well, just yeah. I mean, I don't think you, it's a power law. I don't think you can use Joe Rogan as an example. I mean, he's at the very far extreme. I mean, he has like eight I mean, hour long podcasts and, and all this stuff like that's certainly, like I, I wouldn't Marin. say. Yeah. Those, those, those are the, the, they're outrageous, abnormal, successfully, even smartless. It doesn't have 150 episodes and, and they're, they're a big name. They're, they're kind of in different category, right? Right. So, you're saying how many independent filmmaker, or I mean, inter- yeah, how many independent filmmaker podcasts? <laughs> how yeah. many independent podcasts, like people, like I said, with no name recognition, have hung in there for three years? Yeah, and 150 apps. Okay, I, think it's I will do least, some research. I think that's elite company, and I would like to hear from those other I podcasters. S- I think you'll be surprised. All right. Okay. All right. I mean, I, I'm still very proud of us, and it's an accomplishment, and I'm very happy to get to a nice round number like 150, and we'll hit 200 later this year. But I do right, think right. that there are people that have hung in there and done it. Well, I, I'm looking forward to our super Being fans right. calling calling in and writing in and saying, boy, you guys are the best. Right? <laughs> Go ahead. Stroke my eagle, guys. Come on. <laughs> So we are talking about the 2012 film, The Sessions, and it can be viewed on Prime. I believe you have to, I think we paid for this. And I think it was more than like the $3.99 that's normal. I think it was like $5.29, which is kind of Yeah, odd. it was an odd price point. You're yeah. right. So it, the director is Ben Lewin, who also did 1985's The Denera Boys and 1988's Georgia. And it stars John Hawks as Mark, the lead, and Helen Hunt as Cheryl. They're playing 
They're portraying real people. William H. Macy portrays Father Brendan. Adam Arkin plays Helen Hunt's husband. And Rhea Perlman has kind of a smallish part, but a very kind of pivotal part at the near the end of the film. I won't kind of give that away. But the DP is Jeffrey Simpson, who did Shine, Sleeping Beauty, and Cargo. The writer is Ben Lewin, who also directed it. And he wrote the screenplay from an article written by Mark O'Brien. Mark O'Brien had polio and was in an iron lung. And Ben Lewin also had polio. And he, <gasps> oh. Yeah. And he was researching a semi-autobiographical sitcom when he stumbled on the internet to the story of Mark O'Brien and the sex surrogate Cheryl Cohen Green. And there was a documentary, a short documentary in 96 about O'Brien's life called Breathing Lessons, The Life and Work of Mark O'Brien, directed by Jessica Yu, which won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short that year. I have, he died in 1999 at the age of 49. And I think... That's Ben Lewin that passed, not Mark O'Brien, but I could be wrong. I think Mark O'Brien did pass away. That sounds about the right time frame. So maybe that's when he died. I I have to say that this film felt a little bit like an article expanded into a movie. There wasn't a whole lot that happened, right? I think it was interesting. I spent much of the film with my brow furrowed trying to figure out what I was watching. Oh my gosh. I so disagree with you. So much happened in this. film. <laughs> okay. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. All right. All right. Let me do the synopsis and we'll get into it. The synopsis is a man in an iron lung who wishes to lose his virginity contacts a professional sex surrogate with the help of his therapist and his priest. The tagline is the festival hit of the year. <laughs> Right. That's like the band that named their album Album of the Year. Right, right. (laughs) I'm going to save that trivia that is in my notes for later. Why don't you kick... How about this? You kick us off with your pickup line, and then maybe I'll share some of these trivia tidbits, and then we'll get into it. Okay. I I have a question about uh, after this, but the tagline says, Mark O'Brien has been going to UC Berkeley since 1978. This is delivered by someone who's credited as Bill Hillman, Channel 5 Eyewitness News. Yes. And my question is whether is that is that actual found footage from a local TV station or was that shot and processed to look like a a TV station? I don't have that answer, but I do know that he was going to Berkeley. Yeah. I don't know the Berkeley News stations of 88 well enough to know if that was accurate. Right. Right. Ben met with several different disabled actors to see it for them to play the part, but he didn't feel like any of them that were right for the part. And so that's, so then he cast John Hawks to portray Mark. This is so ironic. This is so, such a double standard. So hesitant at first, Helen Hunt got comfortable being naked in various scenes, specifically the mikvah bath, which is where Rhea Perlman's character comes in, which is a Jewish tradition of kind of cleansing the female body. It's like this, I, my understanding, please forgive me, everyone out there, <laughs> if I make a mistake, because I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just what 
limited knowledge I have of this, but I believe it's in the synagogue. It's in the temple or something because you go to it. So I don't know if it's just like a separate, but it's not like in a spa. There's a mikvah bath. It's like a special (laughs) sacred place. There's a line that Rhea says, I can't remember right now, but it's it's something to the effect of, don't be ashamed of your body. God made this body for you. And so like, and it just melted away any of Helen's. Um, now, first of all, she's beautiful. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was going to say. But she said specifically that line helped her feel more comfortable. And it's something that she wanted her daughter to hear. I read in some of the trivia that she said it was advantageous that there was only a few weeks after she was cast to filming began because it was too little time for her to get crazy about trying to change her diet or what have you. And, and she said, well, this is my middle-aged body and blah, blah, blah. So when I did see the shots of her nude on screen, I was like, Oh, you set me up to expect far worse than that. Like, boy. I mean, that was her plan. Set your expectations yeah, low. Yeah, I guess that well, worked out well. Her publicist did well. So, yeah, I'm sure any of us would be nervous being fully naked in front of a film crew. Right. Um, that she, being said, she looks much better on film than I would. <laughs> she disrobes at least twice on camera and then is seen in various... Or actually three times, because I think we watch her disrobe before she goes into the mikvah bath. Um, yeah, at least three separate. Um, yeah. And then she's seen in in bed with Mar- Mark. And I should... <laughs> I Car- want to say Carol. Cheryl. 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 <laughs> it's not Carol. That was last week. But this is interesting, because I have in my notes, writer-director Ben Lewin said that he decided early on that John Hawks would not display nudity because an erect penis would get him get the film an NC-17. So Helen Hunt can strip down to nothing, and it doesn't get a rating, but an erect penis gets you a rating. Right, but... A non-erect penis, or if he tucked it between his legs all adjacent muse, you're fine. So you can be fully but nude, and we can see pubic hair. needed to have an erect penis. Look, I, I agree. I think it's ridiculous. This is, It's such a double It's standard. a movie about human sexuality. Yes. Right? So I want to read this, because when I read it to me, it perfectly captures why I say so much is happening in this film. And so this is from the Wikipedia article about this film. It says, based upon Mark O'Brien's collection of personal essays for The Sun magazine, O'Brien's article discusses the effect that societal beauty standards had on his self-image and his image of himself as a sexual being. The session shows both internal and external factors that inhibit disabled people from being connected to their sexuality. It also explores the exclusion from their own bodies that severely disabled people can feel. As a religious man, the intersection of disability and religion is brought up in the film also. Disability is portrayed as a punishment for evil. For O'Brien, this brings about a sense of shame that he is not deserving of sex or sexual pleasure. So these are themes that I had never... I. I never considered I'd taken advantage of being an able-bodied person and just the idea that based on their appearance, based on their inability to kind of even 
participate in a courting, in a normal courting kind of, you know, like what we all do kind of as you're coming up, you, the, there's people who you find attractive and you kind of meet and you kind of do all the things and their disability kind of acts as a barrier to that, as well as this other layer of, you know, the religious aspect that he, and they talk about it in the film, he feels like God sentenced him, I'm kind of using air quotes, to a life without sexuality, kind of punished him, right? He talks about that. Those are all very interesting ideas and themes and topics. And I don't feel like the film addressed them. Now, maybe if you're a disabled person and you see this film, it, it resonates with you along those lines because you are thinking of that kind of thing. But as a viewer, I didn't get any of that, right? So that's why I said I, I felt it was it was a like, and that's why I said earlier. I spent a lot of the film frowning, trying to figure out kind of what what was going on here. It seems like a, a nice story, but a straightforward story. But he's so like even he's almost sentenced due to his to the polio and how the polio affects his body to being in like a cell. I mean, the iron lung is practically, it is a physical barrier between, he can't, well, I guess, but, but he can't use his hand. He can't even pleasure himself. But I would argue that he is the most dynamic character in the film. That he causes everything to happen in the plot. He's a protagonist. He's active, even though he's physically not able to. His mind and, and, and with his ability to use language, very interesting. I, I don't want to necessarily call it polarizing, but maybe that's the best word. It's like we saw two different films. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating that we responded to different things in the same film? I just think also there's so many people that are also conflicted. Like I love the William H. Macy character because he has to struggle I'm sure in seminary and everything he's ever been told, you must wait until you are in a committed, you know, like ordained by God relationship before you have sex. And here he is approached by this man who says, I don't want to die a virgin. Can I have your permission to have sex out of wedlock? So I, I, I will say on the podcast what I said uh, when we were watching this. If every Catholic priest was played by William H. Macy, they would have tons more people in those pews. <laughs> that, 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 that's awesome. I mean, he did great in that role. But see, here's where but, this is a good example. But he's got it. And he was conflicted. You could see. Like it he, was fantastic acting from William H. Macy. Absolutely. Who uh, second only probably to his role as Walt Price. But but we never see him interact with anyone else in any other situation. So it doesn't from, matter. So I'm going to give an example. This is like a short story and not a novel. It's very linear, very direct. It, it there's not a lot of depth to the story oh to God. me. The, and that's a perfect example is that priest character. I think without William H. Macy's performance, I, I don't think you get any of that extra 
Okay, I'll lay something else on you. All right. Here you have Cheryl, a sex surrogate. It is her job. She gets paid to have sex with people. She makes it very clear she's not a prostitute. And she she has rules, right? We've talked about different rules yeah, that different but- people set. She has rules. Like, she doesn't see people outside of the session. And she breaks that rule. And you can tell that she's conflicted because I couldn't tell if they were romantic feelings or just like human compassion feelings or like she found him maybe intriguing or I don't know what the I I was trying to figure out like is she falling in love with him but she definitely like there was a sadness to her because there's a rule that they can only do six sessions And it feels like there's a bit of a sadness to her when she knows that session, that last session is coming up. And then we even have her husband who finds a letter that Mark sent her. And now he's experiencing some jealousy over her client. He knows what she does. She's done this many times before. And he seemed okay with it. You know, this was just another client. He didn't seem to have a problem. But then when he finds this letter and I think he sees how she's reacting to it. So now we have this whole complexity of a couple's relationship and where is this going to go? I mean, that's a whole layer right there in themes. I disagree. I think you're projecting this on the film. When he sees the letter, it's like, I'm upset. Oh, wait, I'm not. There was, I didn't feel like that. He was very upset. Yeah, and then suddenly he wasn't upset. There was no journey there. To me, it was, again, this was all about Mark O'Brien. And it's, uh, so I don't say this to, uh, I don't want this to sound like I'm hating on the film. I don't, I think it's a fine film, but I just felt like to me that, uh, I don't know, I didn't get, I didn't get the complexity or the nuance. It was pretty one note for me. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. We both watched the same movie. Yeah. Yeah, and so listeners, feel free to, to, to send us in your opinions on this. On the level of filmmaking, cinematography, so we've talked about the writing probably at nauseum, but were there things in the cinematography, the way it was shot, or the editing that you found interesting or noteworthy? One thing that I thought was really interesting is, and I'd love to hear from the cinematographer on this, how do you light differently when your lead is horizontal, not vertical? And that maybe seems to be a weird question, but visually, human beings stand up a lot and the sun is above us. So we're used to processing images with shadows that are coming down. And if you're trying to hide from someone, like let's say they're trying to capture you and you're on the lamb, lay down flat because it's the shadow that the human eye is designed to trigger on is vertical shadows. I'm sure there's processing related to that with faces because noses give a vertical shadow. And if you're on your side, it's different. So I was very curious if they had any particular challenges or techniques for lighting him when he spends almost the entire movie horizontal. Yeah. And speaking of that, I mean, John Hawks (laughs) is an actor who is willing to, you know, we've, we've heard stories of actors in the past who have harmed themselves and he just (laughs) about did. He created this soccer ball sized pillow that like a piece of foam, not even like a pillow. It was like a piece of foam 
to put under his back to simulate the curvature of Mark O'Brien's spine, so much so that his own organs started to rearrange themselves and his spine, he started mm-hmm. to create like a curvature. Scoliosis, because, basically. Yeah, because of how much time he had spent on this pillow. And he said, you know, it's only a fraction or, you know, just a, a, a small fraction of what the disabled people go through day in and day out. So he felt like mm-hmm. it he didn't want to complain obviously about it. Right. Did he, um, did he lose a lot of weight for the film? Because in the film he's very lean, uh, and, and, and not muscular lean, but just like really skinny, which makes sense if you have polio. But I was just curious as an actor, if that was part of him doing I don't the know. role in the interviews, he looked like he was always kind of a lean kind of guy and it right. was never brought up. So mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. one way or the other. He did have to learn, He said, I'm sure I would get a headache doing this, but he said he had to deliver all of his lines looking at people at 90 degrees Mm -hmm. because like you were saying, he was laying down so much and he had to practice using that, the The, pencil or the poker. Yeah, that was amazing because I was thinking when I was watching it, that would be such a challenge for a person. But then it struck me that this is an actor, not, not the guy who had decades of practice to learn. I mean, he had to learn in that short time period of time. And yes, it, we, we use cutting between them, but still that was amazing. I, I thought it was interesting where early on, there's a moment where he's by himself. I think it's nighttime. His, his caregiver has gone and he gets an itch and he says, scratch with your mind. And I was reminded of the pilots who fly the U2 biplane. It's so high up that it's effectively in space. They wear spacesuits in the plane. And one thing I'd never thought of is you can't reach your face through a spacesuit and you can't take the, the, the helmet off. And they said the biggest challenge is itching, that they're on these miss- missions for hours. And they said, if you get an itch, there's nothing you can do about it except go crazy with the itch. And they actually need to concentrate on flying the plane but the itch, and I thought when he said scratch with your mind, that's what I thought of. That he's sitting there thinking, I have hours before someone can come scratch my nose. Ugh. You're making my nose itch. Yeah, I know. All the listeners probably are cursing me right now. Luckily, I can itch my nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Every listener and together. Itch, itch, itch. Okay. For sets, I didn't even think of this either because he lives alone. He has the caregiver. And he sleeps in an iron lung. He had to find another location, which is something else that differently abled people have to deal with. And so in the film, he uses the home of another disabled person who had a bed that was like lower and had a bed because he didn't even have a bed because he sleeps in the iron lung. And so the importance of location. And I thought it's interesting because you could have written this like, oh, well, they just go to a hotel. But by doing it in a home, in a bed, that makes it a little bit more clinical. Like they eventually have to go to a hotel because this home is not available one time. But it does kind of take away the, I guess, like either seediness or making it a sex act. I mean, even though that is what it is, it, in a way, it's like physical therapy. And So you're saying if they'd gone straight to the hotel, it would have felt more like a prostitute? Yeah, uh, I yeah. think. I think, yeah, I think so, yeah. And so by setting it in the home first and having mm-hmm. it be this like 
comfortable location and also almost like a oh shoot what do they call it like a third party location or a because it wasn't his home it wasn't her home it was a neutral like neutral site yeah that did kind of bump me because i felt like the friend this would have been a super big deal and then when they show up and she has like some rage and party going on and she forgot that did that bumped me because i don't think she would have forgot i think this was a big big deal and it was very flattering that he asked you know to use her place so it worked for the plot but that was a little off for me when i was reading some of these notes i was like yeah but then you're like oh my god somebody had sex in my bed earlier today like when you went to bed that night yeah but she would have understood being in a wheelchair herself like the necessity for this and you know kind of like i want to give this to my friend yeah it's a gift yeah Yeah. who can't who doesn't have the way the means to do this on their own right but i i will admit that I will go to bed tonight happy that no one, none of my friends has banged in my bed like just hours previous. Was there, was there any head trauma? No pun intended. I I did not uh, note any head trauma. However, there was implied because he did mention back when he had the motorized cart for his iron lung that he would run people down. And that's why they took away the motorized cart. That was so, I've never, like, there, I, I don't know how many scenes there were him on this gurney being pushed to right. the friend's house. Yeah. And I've never seen anybody who was completely flat being transported other than like in a hospital right. or something. So I, I, I did have the question during the film whether the iron lung was functional or a prop but then at the end of the film they gave credit to a place that provides re- rehabilitation equipment so i think it was functional that's so i mean i guess thank, maybe not turned thank, on but yeah thankfully to who sulk who, who do yeah we, i think sulk is who do polio, we think for no more right? polio um are there i mean obviously there may still be people who are living who have polio i guess i need to do a deep dive on polio and educate myself or we're discovering but like are there still iron lungs and is there right. no other better technology right I mean, like yeah, with this a is CPAP all... machine that helps you right that pushes pressure and makes sure that you're breathing when you stop so is that like an ent kind of question or is there a, yeah, I don't a know. pulmonary I'm, specialist I respiratory specialist educate yeah. myself all mm-hmm. right so you have brought up before <laughs> Vivian's rule from Pretty Woman about kissing. No kissing. Did did I think they did? Did they, they kiss? did? Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. Yes, Cheryl and Mark kiss in the hotel room, and I was actually going to ask because right we've established that she's not a prostitute, and I thought it was good because at one point she says there's a difference, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what is it? And I felt that that Father Brendan, played by William H. Macy, was kind of the surrogate for the viewer to ask these questions, but he didn't ask that one. So I was curious. But then later she goes on to say, a prostitute wants to your continued business, and I don't. However, this kissing is right on that boundary because of the emotional content. Now, I believe you'd ask previous, like, what was it just kind of like a non-romantic attachment? I think it was romantic. And here's the thing for why I say that human beings are built to have an emotional attachment to people they've had sex with. There's oxytocin. That's just the way humans are built. So I would think that would be an occupational hazard, you know, okay. People that you're not totally into, 
right? You would get a little maybe feeling, but you'd be like, okay, it's just clinical. But imagine, right, if you were in that profession and you did vibe with somebody, because it happens, right, with mm-hmm. humans, mm-hmm. that would be really difficult. So I think, actually, that's how I interpreted I think they had romantic feelings for each other, encouraged by or inflamed by the sexual activity. So all that being said, uh, that for me, that kiss had more because of what I felt like with this romantic connection. Uh, I think that kiss was was much more important. And so she would, I think, as the person who's the therapist would know that at the time. So I thought it was interesting in the six, you know, she said very upfront, you know, we only have six sessions. Right. And so I wonder, could he have had another, like if his, you know, I'm going to liken it to, to physical therapy, you go because you twisted your ankle. Right. If your ankle isn't strengthened after six, you can keep going. You might have to go back to your doctor and get more approved, but they can improve more. So if his psychological issues or his physiological issues weren't corrected with the six sessions, could he then engage with another sex surrogate Yeah, and further his therapy? And is the six because, you know, the human, I guess, can compartmentalize the feelings up to six. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the answer is yes, you could go back, but it has to be a different therapist. Right. And where did the six come from? I just remember I saw a guy who was allowed to drive an older spec Formula One car and they only gave him three laps. And he says, why three? And the guy says, well, because on the first lap, you don't know what you're doing. The second lap, you figure it out. The third lap, you're doing great. But on the fourth lap, you crash. He says, everybody, it's just the human mind follows a certain pattern. And I wonder if it's the same thing with the six, that there's a certain first couple of sessions is awkwardness and then you're figuring it out. And then you kind of in five and six, you get this work done. And if you come back from seven, then problems start, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's where the six comes from. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to jump ahead because I just saw this and we happen to be talking about it. It says the Spanish language version of this film is called Six Sessions of Sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're right on the nose. Right. So, driving review. Um, Well, uh, there wasn't a lot of actual driving. I will say that there's a Blue 65 Mustang multicolored 73 Chevy Nova around his house, which tells us that he's not living in a Tony part of Berkeley. He's living in a regular part, which makes sense because he probably doesn't have a ton of money, right? Cheryl drives a wood-paneled 88 Buick LeSabre estate wagon. This is obviously a slightly lower budget film because when we see her driving, it is 88. That would have been a brand new car, but the faux wood paneling is so worn, it's obvious that it wasn't restored. But that's a very functional vehicle uh, for 88. Station wagons were common for families. And then in her business, as we see later, she carries props around. So that makes sense. And then lastly... By props, he means a mirror. (laughs) Well, the, the, at least that. I thought there was other stuff too, but <laughs> like, but she didn't have like sex toys. Oh yeah, no, not that. Oh, I mean, you could get fit those in a Miata, but <laughs> and then at the end, I thought it was interesting uh, when he meets who would become his amour at the hospital, and then there's a scene where he's being loaded into an ambulance for transport, and the interior is wood paneled it looks like a cheap motel room not an ambulance it's yeah and so all i could think was for production 
they could only find some 70s van and they they rebadged it somehow but it really bumped me yeah when I the guys in the emt gear with the gurney load him into this wood paneled shag carpeted like love shack <laughs> i was like oh, okay shall we go to the numbers let's go to the numbers okay so this film, like I said, came out in 2012. It had a budget of a million dollars. So clearly, even though a million sounds like a lot of money and I wouldn't right. turn it down for in, as indie f- films go, that's, you know, that's a budget right there for and, an indie film. And how much of that went to uh, Helen Hunt and William H. Macy? <laughs> right. I think they did this one for the love of the project. William, please call me. I've got projects that you can love. <laughs> it got a score of 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics loved it at 91%, and audiences enjoyed it as well at 80%. It's an hour and 35 minutes. It's rated R. It's a biography comedy drama. I did like that it had a little bit of levity. Yeah, I thought it was a well-done film. Yeah. For the subject matter, it it was difficult to land that without it becoming salacious or clinical. Right. It wasn't silly. No. But yeah, it was just, I thought, tonally. Yeah, it landed nailed that it. perfect. Yep. Yes. With that starting budget of a million, domestically they made six million, and worldwide they made 11 and a half. Oh, million. fantastic yeah. for them. Good job. It's a Searchlight Pictures film. It is garnered 18 wins and 64 nominations among them john hawks won for breakthrough actor at the hollywood film awards and helen and john both won film independent spirit awards which is kind of i think kind of like it's a well-known one down in la Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that is well regarded i'll say that I've, i've heard different filmmakers talk about being excited about winning a spirit award so let's see. Like I said, we watched it on Prime. I would love to know what other people thought of this film since we were a little divided here in the Studio D here in at Dodge Studios. So um, anyway, I I hope you enjoyed it. It was it was a good film. I really, I think, like I said, this would be a hard one to find that right balance and and the yeah. filmmakers did it so kudos to everyone yeah, involved. absolutely it is a very well done film yeah so that finishes out this year wow end of the year isn't that exciting it is very exciting okay so this is our last film for 2023 next week we will announce who won the 100 dollars gift card of the guess the theme contest that we have been running for an entire year (laughs) (laughs) and as well as let's pick what film we're going to talk about next i'm going to pick for next week as as well as our first pick for next year let's see the month drum roll please drum roll please we are going to be watching the rose the rose bet midler bet midler oh nice i feel like i've maybe seen that movie but it's been a very long time so it'll be very fun to watch it again yes okay so stay tuned to hear us talk about the rose there you have it guys that's the film that we're going to talk about next week never forget dodges never stop and neither do the movies Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, 
leave a comment and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.